What is up? What is going on, everybody? This week, you are joined by three guys who are just aspiring to grow up to become grumpy old bastards, just like Clint Eastwood. And we'll talk about it on the other side of the song. Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of The Threequel. As always, I'm one of your three co-hosts, Ethan Klein. Here with me, Mike Duranik and Brad Miller. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Doing all right. How are you doing, Ethan? I am doing good. Mike, how are you doing? I think better than Clint Eastwood was for the bulk of this movie, uh, so not bad at all. Yeah, not not a lot of smiling that that he does in this film. Not a lot of smiling he's done in the probably the last thirty years of his career, which is definitely something we will talk about. The first time we have entered into uh, the world of Clint Eastwood, and that is, of course, as you saw in the title of the episode, uh, Gran Torino, Brad's pick for the month of January. Uh, definitely a uh, a shift in in tone from last week as we were doing uh, 13 hours uh this uh, a very very different film you know i said last week i gave michael bay credit you know he avoided putting in any racial stereotypes in, in 13 hours uh for the most part you know he really really showed that maturity and clint eastwood uh said hold my beer uh probably a paps blue ribbon and then just went all out uh, for this week's uh, film in Gran Torino, but also for, for different reasons in different settings. So we'll talk about everything that Gran Torino brought us as we go through this one, but don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to ask you guys the question that I always do, and that is, how did you first come to see Gran Torino? Was it back in the theaters in 2008? Was it on the extensive run that this movie has had on cable for years and years and years? Was this your first time seeing it? I'm assuming that's not what Brad's answer will be since he picked it. But, uh, gentlemen, what was it? Well, uh, like many of our other uh, movies we've done, it, it must not have been a memorable first watch as far as where it took place. I obviously remember the movie and enjoyed the movie, but I couldn't tell you. Um, I believe if I was guessing that it was a, a rental um, rented the movie. Um, I assume Blockbuster was still around then, so it might have been that. Uh, it could have been something else, but I think it was slightly before some of the popular, the, before the streaming services got popular. Um, so that's probably how I came to see it the first time. I'm fairly certain that I saw this in the theater. Uh, I, I couldn't like tell you with who or with like certain confidence. Um, but this would have been right in that era where, uh, this is right, you know, post-college for me, um, quite frankly, had more time on my hands to do things like go see the movies on, on my days off from work. And so I'm fairly certain I would have caught this in the theater, uh, with one of my, my friends. Yeah, this is, I don't have a definitive answer either. I do know I did not see it in theaters. Um, and actually, even as I said that out loud, there was a thought of what if I did? So I'll say like, I'm 80% sure I didn't see it in theaters. Um, probably caught it. Like, I mean, I alluded to this thing. My biggest memory of it is it was on TNT constantly. It, it was never not on TNT. It's just the image I have of like 
2009 and 10, right after this came out, it seemed like everybody I knew saw it, which was kind of strange. I mean, I was in eighth grade when this came out, so I don't really know why it spoke to a bunch of like ninth graders uh, by the time it got to TV, but it did because I feel like everybody I knew saw it. Um, it was filmed in Detroit or, or right around there, so maybe some Michigan ties for, for me growing up there, but I don't really know, but for whatever reason, everybody seemed to have saw it, so it was kind of must-see viewing. I have not seen it since that initial. I mean, I maybe saw it twice back when this came out. Had not seen it since, so uh, definitely a lot to refresh uh, going into this. So let's get into it, and of course, I mean, most of our conversation when we talk about uh, behind-the-scenes stuff is going to be on one man, starred in it and directed it. Like I said, we have not spoken about Clint Eastwood yet, uh, and and I think this is a curious conversation because obviously um, he has been a hundred years old for the last fifty years. Um, I think he has just looked this way for as long as I've been alive. Um, I don't I don't think he ages anymore. He he just he went from like the westerns he was in to just old, and it hasn't changed. Um, but I'm curious when you guys think of Clint Eastwood, where does your mind go? Because there's definitely a definitive, you know, he was, it's him and John Wayne, right? Or kind of like, if you just say like icons of the Western genre, those are the two. And he has that, but then he has the, he started directing side of his career, started starring in his own pictures side of his career. And they are two completely different things. So I'm curious when we say Clint Eastwood, what is it that comes to your guys' minds uh, when you think about him? Well, for me, I, I was not, and I, we've probably had this discussion before. I don't know that I've ever seen a Clint Eastwood Western film. Um, just was not into Westerns was not my thing. So for me, Clint Eastwood is, you know, for me, it's the last, 20 years or so uh, movies he's been in movies he's directed outside of Westerns. I think there's a little bit of that sprinkled in, but I think of this, I think of the mule, I think of, uh, you know, unforgiven million dollar baby, like, you know, things like that, that he's got his name associated with. Um, but um, yeah, it was never got into the, the Western scene. And so that, never really played a part uh, in my in my viewing of Clint Eastwood. Certainly not as big of a Western fan by any stretches as I've come to realize you are, Ethan. Um, and I will say for whatever reason, and maybe this is somebody else's experience beyond mine, maybe this is just in my own head. I always kind of felt like you had to either be an Eastwood guy or a John Wayne guy. And because of the fact that my dad and my uncle were huge John Wayne fans, I um, just arbitrarily, I think, probably picked up the John Wayne and not that guy mantle um, and have stuck with it, as anyone who knows me uh, will be able to nod their head to uh, pretty much forever in terms of the Western movies. If I have to pick one, uh, I'm going to watch one of the John Wayne Westerns, not one of the Eastwood ones. Uh, as far as what I think of when I think of Eastwood, I think of, you know, first off, more than any one movie, just a prolific career. Um, certainly one of the greater actors to, to 
go across a lot of genres to be able to do the the writing, directing, uh, acting uh, thing of that nature. Um, and then as far as what movie I think of, um, I think, you know, this run of about 10 years here in the uh, first decade of the 2000s is kind of peak Eastwood and Million Dollar Baby always comes to my mind as the movie when I think of Clint Eastwood um, that he comes to, to mind the most, I should say. Yeah, it's it's very interesting for me. I, I like you said, I mean, if there is that definitive line, are you an Eastwood or are you John Wayne guy? I grew up more on John Wayne. I've seen I've seen all of the major Clint Eastwood westerns and some of the minor ones as well. When I think of that genre, I like to have a little more fun than Eastwood ever did in any of his westerns. They are very gritty and just doesn't lend itself to the type of films that I like to watch from that time. Um, And it's interesting, too, because all of his major, like, you know, these are the Eastwood movies, I've never really ended up being that big of a fan of you know the uh the good the bad and the ugly i think is bloated and and i haven't gone back to watch it in a long time i borderline hate unforgiven i i mean that was sold to me as like oh my god you know it won best picture he won best director this is the greatest western of all time i can't stand it million dollar baby is depressing for for lack of not wanting to be anything else um and so all of these ones that are like these are peak eastwood i never hit but i will go back then and say i'm a massive clint eastwood fan (laughs) it's for everything else i love pale rider heartbreak ridge um i'm trying to think i'm blanking on a perfect world that he did with kevin costner in the line of fire space cowboys i love it it, it's all of those and coming back and and i did enjoy this rewatch um and, and the mule i enjoyed as well so I'm a big Clint Eastwood fan, but not for any of the works that are like, this is why Clint Eastwood is great. It's for everything else, which is probably a strange opinion, but it's just where I've always landed with him. And, uh, you know, it's never been for his amazing acting. It's been because he knows what he's doing and and he he does it well. I mean, In the Line of Fire was that had to be in the 90s, I would assume. And he's been playing old, busted, (laughs) over the hill uh since then since 93 and i i I think in the line of fire is probably my favorite eastwood i really do i just enjoy that style of movie anyway so that's where i'm at with it it's it's just a little different than i think than most people would be you know ethan um i agree with you wholeheartedly on especially one point unforgiven is a wildly overrated movie um i came to that movie the same way you did i remember i bought the dvd in fact because i hadn't seen it i was so excited to see it i so wanted to see this movie uh unearth this gem and i don't know that i've ever actually even finished it i think i've fallen asleep every time that i've tried to watch it and so um you know maybe from from the time i mean what's that early 90s right 92 somewhere in there um maybe it, it was that great in that time period. I mean, movies were a little slower back then, as we saw with Silence of the Lambs and our review of that over the course of this podcast and how far down our rankings that movie is. Uh, But man, I found that one to be particularly painful and not the best showing of Eastwood's talents. I would definitely uh, rewatch this one and even the depressing Million Dollar Baby uh, multiple times before revisiting that. So I... 
to be you defend you said that million dollar baby is your favorite eastwood is that it's where my mind goes first okay. when i think of eastwood uh but it admittedly has been a very long time since i've seen that as well and so i'm not sure that i can can say that with confidence uh this one may be right up there brad and brad do you have a pick for just favorite eastwood just off the top of your head um i i think i agree with you uh, you're in the line of fire um and then i would say right the mule and grand torino are kind of right there um but yeah I, i'd say back to uh, i think it was 93 for in the line of fire it's interesting the you know I, I always have imdb pulled up so i can reference things whatever and they have the known for under actors and directors and things like that so his known fours grand torino million dollar baby unforgiven and the bridges of madison county <laughs> so there's there's usually a screwball in the known four and and there it is um, it, it seems like that's crazy though that they would say that that's what he's known for where even though again not the biggest fan of his western movies but yeah like isn't he far more well known for those at, than he is for anything else that he's done yeah i mean i i would say that because he is He's an icon, and it's built on the Western. You know, he, he is this this force of nature in Hollywood because of where he started, in my opinion. But he definitely, you know, you talk about the, the juxtaposition of him and John Wayne. There's a, there's a couple of John Wayne movies where he wanders outside of the Western genre that I enjoy because of nostalgia. Nobody from that era carried themselves outside of that genre the way that Clint Eastwood had. I mean, he yeah, like it's two completely different careers that no one else was able to do. That's exactly what I was going to say is unlike any of the others, he had a second act and it was a darn good second act. And so, you know, you could have his, his back half of his career or the front half of his career. And uh, almost any actor would be glad to take uh, either one of those. And we didn't even mention Dirty Harry. Like he's he's just got these iconic things that just just stack up a little bit differently. Um, let's go through. I mean, there there is nobody else in on screen in this movie um, that is you know heavy hitters. I guess is what I'm looking for. There are recognizable faces from a couple people, but um, he is you know. He's the poster. It is it is a Clint Eastwood movie through and through. There are other performances, and I think, um, I mean, to me, the two that really stand out are the brother and sister, um, Tao and Sue. For two people that I have never seen in anything else, I don't know if they've been in anything else. I think they did great working off of him. And I'm sure that that's intimidating walking in and working with Clint Eastwood, um, especially the subject matter that this movie is, but I thought they hit it out of the park. Uh, and then a shout out to um, Christopher Carley, who played uh, the priest. Cause I thought he, their scenes were, were really great as well. But other than that, not a ton that stood out to me, but those three really did their job to carry this movie with Eastwood. Yeah, the uh, actor and actress who played the brother and sister really in um, nothing else. Uh, B. Vang, who played Tao, uh, looks like, from what Wikipedia is telling me, only modern family as himself. Uh, and for her, um, a 
role in a movie called Nightclub, and then hostage role number one in Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, and that's it. From what I'm seeing here, yeah, I think uh, the the barber was probably the most yep. recognizable guy to me. I mean, he just plays kind of bit roles in most films that he's in. So Zodiac, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think kind of what you're saying, Clint Eastwood built around him a a cast of, you know, maybe maybe he thought they would be up-and-comers or maybe he saw something in them that just fit this perfectly. But, uh, um, yeah, not not too many names in this for sure. And it's strange because that's typically not how Eastwood puts a movie together. Um, More times than not, he gets famous people to take those smaller roles you know i mean you look at the mule that you know you've mentioned a couple times brad and i'm a fan of it bradley cooper being as supporting of a role as you can be in a movie and that movie you know it takes a guy like eastwood to grab people like that and say you know i'm doing a movie i want you to be a part of it it's very rare in his directing career that he just grabs all unknowns and puts them on screen and by and large, I mean, I, I had no problems with the performances in this movie. I was never taken out of the movie because anybody did a poor job. In fact, I thought everybody did really, really well um, telling the story that they wanted to tell in this. Even uh, his son in the one scene that he was in, who I think is not a talented actor. Um, but, you know, he even threw him in there. And then I don't think he's worked with him often. Yeah, maybe that uh, it speaks to his intelligence, though, because... If you think of this type of film, I wonder if, you know, uh, if if he takes another more well-known Asian actor and puts him in that role as, as Tao, like, what does that do? I mean, if, if your focus is on that character, are you less concerned about the gang involvement? Are you kind of thinking like, okay, what's going to happen to him? Um, because, you know, if, if, if this famous person is in it it's going to somehow involve them more and maybe that's kind of the genius of this is like you watch through most of the film thinking like okay like is something bad happening to Tao is something something bad going to happen to Walt you know you're not really sure exactly what way things are going to go you're kind of just living life through Walt's eyes in in this world here and that's probably um part of the genius of the casting i would guess well and taking it a step further brad you're right it was genius but it was also intentional uh based off of what i read on this he specifically sought out uh, actors and actresses from a specific uh, community and did not want to cast asian american actors uh in those roles if they weren't from that community because that was the community he was seeking to portray in terms of the greater Detroit area and some of those things. And so uh, when you see that a lot of these uh, actors were unknowns and remain unknowns, um, that's what he was seeking out. And again, just from my brief uh, internet research while watching the movie, uh, it seems like it was really well received by that community. That's awesome. That's fantastic to really just um, be set in his ways to want to do that. And, by all accounts, I mean, I think he hit it out of the park. So let's talk just more focused then on Gran Torino itself. Um, I was talking about this with someone today. Uh, I had not, well, I watched it, you know, just before we recorded, like I do often. And I was trying to remember 
you know, the bits and pieces. And basically what I, I was like, he's a full blown racist, right? Like that's basically the point of this movie. And they're like, well, yeah. I was like, and then, you know, he, he turns things around. Yeah. Okay. There was a lot more layers to his character than I remembered um, years ago when I saw this. And I think that at the end of the day is what I took away the most from this was it does come across as simply in some ways the most racist movie we've done on this podcast and we did Django. Um, but there's so much more going on and, and you know, Clint Eastwood does quite often play the same person over and over again. But in this case, he's playing someone that we all know, right? I mean, we are still, I, I am still, I think I'm probably on the back end of the generation where I've got people in my family that can live up to this caricature. You know, we're going to start getting to where like, we can't say like, well, they're from a different generation because of how not okay this is. But I've heard my grandpa say these things and not be hateful when he says them, but it was just okay. Right. Like, so there's, he is playing someone that I think we all know and it, and it gives a pretty layered performance. I thought. I agree with um, a lot of what you're saying. And at first you, the first few minutes of it, you do believe that this man is just racist. He's just hating on, uh, you know, his neighbors, his community, the people around him, just the, this entire uh, demographic of people. But in so many ways, it's not that at all. And he shows you that he's anything but racist. Um, as you get to know him, he, I mean, ultimately, spoiler alert for the listeners, gives his life for, um, you know, someone of another uh, ethnicity here. And clearly you can't be racist and do that. I think what you're seeing there is a, a man who had to do horrible things to people that he did not know um, in the war. And in order to justify that, I think he mentally had to tell himself, I hate these people. This is what made it okay. They were savages. They were um, less than human. Um, and that's probably the only way you can wake up each day and live with yourself for doing some of the things that he said. And he admitted it later, like just, he, he shot a man in the, in the face that was like basically begging for mercy. Um, you know, and I, I can't imagine what you must have to do mentally to, um, live that down. But, you know, he tells Tao later, like you don't need, I'm, I'm stained, I think was his words. I, I don't want you to have to go through that. And so, like, clearly he cares for these people. Um, I think also, too, like, just having that whole demeanor kind of gives him permission to live a life of solitary. He's he's an introvert. He doesn't have to be around other people. He's perfectly fine with his two best friends, you know, a cooler of beer and the dog. Um, and I think in order to not be hurt or to not be, you know to ever feel like you're missing out on something. He had to create this, this feeling of hatred towards these people around him. And it, he also didn't understand them clearly did not understand their culture at all until he got to know them a little bit. So I think all of that gives him excuses to um, look the other way and not understand that culture. Um, but you alluded to it and saying there's many layers to that character. And I think he played it, um, 
very, very well. Yeah, I think you've got, as you alluded to, Brad, talked about the the wartime trauma, right, and that hanging over him from, um, you know, his time in the Korean War. You've got the grief and loss of losing his wife. You've got the disconnect from his own kids and probably looking at his own kids, um, you know, as if they're spoiled, as if they don't know how hard he had to work to support them and to set them up. And then you've got something else. And so my my wife is from the greater metro Detroit area, has a lot of family from Detroit. And so I think one of the things that this movie hit uh, very well was um, the simultaneous, like, you know, the neighborhoods are changing, the white flight aspect of it, which you see with the kids trying to get him out of there, come into this retirement community, things of that nature. Uh, but it's also tied up with the industry struggles, right? Uh, you know, he worked at a car, one of the major car manufacturers. He, he got to build uh, and put the steering column in that Grand Torino, right? Um, and so when you talk about the layers with this, I think what this film does well, that makes me go, man, this really might be an incredible film on some levels, is that it nails all of those layers. Uh, it, it puts them all in there intricately. And then it actually, in a in a weird way, right, where, where you're used to movies like this, the, the downside of them is that they can be the white savior coming in to save the minority. But in a weird way, while, yes, as Brad said, spoiler alert, he does die in service of that, it was actually his neighbors who saved him and gave him a chance at redemption. And so I, I really think that there's a lot with this movie um, on this rewatch that I was surprised with and that I really appreciated. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, thinking back through what I know of his career, and I mean, I already said that, you know, he's not this like world class Academy Award level actor, but I will say I think this might be the best performance I can just think of after this rewatch of his because he does a really, really good job of showing that trauma that he's got going on underneath without just saying it. Um, some of the scenes that he does without saying anything, his reaction to um, Sue, so, yeah, when she comes back after being attacked, like his, his reaction to that is pure, like a triggering moment that he can't handle his emotions. Um, and he doesn't even say anything in this scene. You know, he drops the glass and walks out, but there's a lot of really strong acting that he puts into that. So, um, I was a big fan of what he did and, you know, just in terms of a character, you know, to his credit, he, he is an equal opportunity piece of shit at the beginning of the film. He, he hates his own grandchildren. Uh, he hates the kids from across the street. He hates his neighbors. He, he really does just hate everyone at the beginning. So it, it, at least he's spreading it far and wide. And even to that, <laughs> I realized this time his kids are terrible. I mean, part of him being a crotchety old bastard is probably because he's been told that he's one for the better part of 20, 30 years. I mean, his sons are awful in this movie. I hated them uh, watching it this time. And I don't know if you guys thought that as well, but that scene where they're trying to talk him into the retirement home is painful. And I didn't take a single piece of it as they cared about him. No, I mean, uh, 100%. And, you know, that's when we talk about those layers, right? The resentment that he has for his own kids and his own grandkids, which follows through all the way to the final scene of the movie in just a, uh, a wonderful way as they're reading the will, right? Um, but you can see, I mean, clearly at, at 
best case scenario, they're very estranged. Um, the the kids don't know him. He doesn't know them. And, and that's sad in a sense, right? Uh, but I also think for individuals of a certain generation, certainly he's trying to portray that generation. He served in Korea, right? Um, that's not uncommon. And we didn't have an understanding of the trauma of war back then that we did uh, coming out of Vietnam and certainly that we have since then. And so it wasn't uncommon to have, you know, individuals, parents, fathers, obviously fighting in Korea, that generation, World War II, come back and be far more distant um, and not understood by their kids. Uh, but I think that the, the, the generation that fought in Korea in particular had a challenge there with their kids coming of age through the 60s and, and early 70s. Yeah, I think um, I'm trying to picture my grandfather here because he, he was in the Korean War. And I think that um, if my grandfather had lost my grandmother um, in, in reverse order because he died about, oh, close to 20 years before she did, um, like, I, I think that he could have easily gone down this path. I think the thing that would have been different is he had his family right next door. We didn't have like Mike, Mike described in Detroit, the white flight. So he would have had us to lean into, to have companionship, to have that ability to um, love and show that softer side. So I don't think he would have turned this way. But if you remove his family from the picture you remove us and say you know we're nowhere close and he doesn't know his neighbors and he doesn't have those people close by he's just a couple degrees off from being clint eastwood here he would have cared about his house he would have cared about his vehicles he would have cared about you know um sitting in his basement and smoking his cigarettes um like i remember him doing and that's who he would have been and i think you can very easily become calloused and um you know very, very easily fall into the rut that he was in. But as it showed, it, all it took was one relationship of somebody um, caring about some of the things that he cared about um, to bring him out of that. He, once he saw Tao working hard and once he saw Tao showing an interest in tools and cars and in girls and all this stuff, like he instantly pulled out of that he he you know i think at first it was sue that really did that but it was tau that uh, brought that all the way around and it was it was really neat to see and i, I think another important factor is here you know we're, we kind of say is he racist is he not and then ethan i think you called him equal opportunity like even with the construction guy with the bar right buddy in his life everything's about race you know, they, you stupid Polak, you know, whatever they're calling each other in, in different times in this, like, that's just normal for him. I don't know that he's doing it out of a place of hatred. It's just how you categorize the people around you, you know, and all of them are derogatory. All of them are mean. Um, but it was just that the other guys are in on the joke. So it didn't seem as bad, you know, um, obviously these, uh, the, the Korean uh, community there was not in on the joke, but they uh, Sue showed that that they very well could be. You know, if yep. you want to tease us, yeah, we'll we'll play into that stereotype. But let me show you how you're wrong. And 
she kind of laughed about it and threw it back at him. And, and, and that was neat to see too. So yeah, very, very well done on, on, on many levels there for sure. All right, guys, let's uh, switch gears here and see if I can defend the title for the Rotten Tomatoes game. I think since we've switched to this new style, I, I don't know if we've had a back-to-back winner. I think the 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 weekly reigning champ has fallen, um, which, I mean, you know, advantage to the champ. We have to guess one way or the other uh, after they make that first pick. So uh, sitting Rotten Tomatoes score, I believe it's me versus Brad this week. That's correct. So I am ready whenever you are, Ethan, to to give us this. And I hope one of our uh, you know listeners out there is keeping track of all of our Rotten Tomatoes games. So at some point we can have a scoreboard. That goes yeah. out to you, Pappy Drew. Please do. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ethan, what you got? This I think this one may be the toughest one that I've been a part of because I know that a lot of people watched this, but I have zero recollection of what they thought about it when it was in the theater, and I know it wasn't nominated for anything. I would say it's got to be fresh. So I am going to go with 78. All right, Brad. That's it. Easy one for me. I'll go 79. I don't think there's any way it's that low. Um, So, yeah, I'll say 79. Well, as you guys know, rules, it used to be I had to be within three points. Now you've just got to be on the right side of whoever goes first. Um, Ethan, you nearly hit the nail on the head, and then Brad sniped you. It is at an 81, so both of you are very, very close to it. All right. Okay. Well, that Brad, if I had gone 82, would you have still gone above me? Yeah, I, I would have. I was guessing uh, I was guessing high 80s. Um, 87 88 is kind of where I would have uh, gone. So yeah, I would have I would have been above you there too. Well, Brad will so I we still have not been able to have a back-to-back winner in this. Box office wise, it was 33 million uh to make it and it made 270. So it was a wild success. I I want to jump into this quickly. Uh best picture this year. Do you do you know off the top of your head what won best picture? In 2008 yeah. Uh, no country for old or that that was no, a different that. year. So this was Slumdog Millionaire. Okay. Yes. So yeah, Slumdog somehow beating The Dark Knight when The Dark Knight wasn't nominated. Right. Right. So the other the other four, Benjamin Button, mm-hmm. Frost Nixon, mm-hmm. Milk, The Reader. <laughs> How was this not nominated in addition to The Dark Knight? I mean, both of these those movies are better than than most of those, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, The Reader is bad. Um, Milk was what the Academy wanted it to be to prove a point. I'll leave that there. Um, Benjamin Button's bad. The more I've rewatched it, that's a that's a rough year. And then Frost, like Frost Nixon, not anything to write home about, unless you're wanting a nap, right? I, I enjoy it more than all of the other nominees, but I yes, I see your point. I, well, I mean, yes, that, and my broader point again is this movie, it, it, but this one came out after uh, Million Dollar Baby, right? Yeah, oh yeah, so. 
before. So this probably doesn't get nominated because they had given Clint all of his love and accolades uh, a couple years prior. Most likely. And I mean, it honestly, too, I mean, I think people probably looked at this the way that I did up until this rewatch. It's the racist old white guy that, you know, kind of becomes good at the end. I think that was probably the prevailing thought. And I, I know this did not get appreciated the way that I now do just on this rewatch. Yeah. Well, for my money outside of the dark night, my next favorite movie that year was the wrestler. So, um, I, yeah, that, I mean, the I, Academy I probably, I probably could have come up with five movies. Slumdog millionaire wasn't terrible out of the five that were nominated. It was probably the best movie I thought out of the five. I can tell you this as someone who has watched the Academy Awards presentation every year since 2007 in its entirety, I end up just being reminded every year of why winning does not necessarily hold that much weight (laughs) because a lot of those people have to be hammered drunk while they are voting for nominees. Um, Let's wrap it up. Brad, do you have some? Yeah, I kind of quickly to to the point though. I I guess there's there's things about the film that I can see why it, it's held against it. I could see why the numbers actually lower than what I would have guessed. Like I came into this honestly thinking um, my recollection of Gran Torino was that this is going to be in my top five or six movies that we've done. Um, I thought it would be up there with No Country for Old Men, um, you know, in, in kind of that similar vein of like a it's a slow methodical uh, movie that in the end though, as a whole, it pays off. Um, I'll tell you when I got done, I ended up ranking this at 22, um, which I was shocked that it was that low. Um, I've since moved it up to 17. Um, and I, maybe it's going to get higher. I appreciate it a little more after hearing some of your guys's uh, perspectives on it. So, um, but I guess it's just not to the level of, of some of those others that we've done, at least in my opinion. And, and I'm surprised I picked this movie because I, I thought it was going to be up there. I think it's a great film. Um, I uh, Some of the nuances that we've talked about, I, I'm going to probably give this some thought before I officially kind of finalize that list. But there's a few little things like um, one, his singing at the end, what, what was that? His his whispering Grand Torino song that he is playing over the credits that took away from it. That the understand why he did this with the his directing choices of when he was um, and the crap out of that kid in the front yard. Just some of the camera angles and different things that he did, and um, it, maybe it's a little too slow moving for some people. Like it, it really it's. It's a long, I mean, it's not a long film. It's a shorter film that doesn't have a lot of um, crescendos. You know, there's just a few little things here and there that that pop up and then you have the, the big scene at the end. So, um, you know, there's just a few things there that make it a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Some of the language um, as far as the, the names and things like that, like, I, I, I guess I, I'm not too shocked that this wasn't held in such a high regard, but I think it's once you really dig into it, kind of like what we're doing here is where you see what it really brings to the table. So I hopefully it'll end up higher than 17 for me. 
Oh, wholeheartedly. And it ended at about, uh, I think, number 20 for me. I just shot my list uh, out to you guys. Uh, so it's middle of the pack, or at this point, since I think this is our 50th movie that we reviewed, it's uh, yeah. solidly right inside the top 40% there. Um, but I do think on first watch, the language, the the overt racism, things like that can be major, you know, understandably um, turnoffs to this movie. I do think what this rewatch gave me was a greater appreciation of the nuance of the character uh, and a greater appreciation as I did some more research into how he made this movie, how he you know, sought out actors and actresses uh, into kind of the design of the movie. Agreed on, on all fronts. There's definitely, I mean, it's not a perfect movie, um, but much more appreciation this time let's wrap it up with favorite line favorite scene guys uh what was your favorite line from gran torino well my favorite line uh, comes near the end of the movie and uh, it is when walt walks in to the uh, the church and uh father uh, jankovic says what can i do for you walt and he says i'm here for a confession and his response is holy jesus what did you do <laughs> so i just appreciated that that moment of of humor in the midst of watching these scenes showing what he was doing you didn't know exactly how it was going to go but you knew what he was preparing to do uh, and there was that brief moment of humor and laughter in the midst of all of that uh, yeah, I can't say the line that made me laugh the most, um, because there are some rules to the things you can and can't say, uh, on the Apple podcast, uh, app, but, uh, maybe I'll tell these guys off air and I'm assuming they probably laughed at it as well. Cause it was pretty humorous. Um, but my favorite line for the podcast, uh, was Walt and Sue having a conversation and he, he's saying that he doesn't care about Tao. Um, and uh, sorry, Pappy Drew, for your delicate ears, but she said, you hang out with him, you teach him to fix things, you saved him from that fucked cousin of ours, and he says, watch your language, and she says, you're a better man to him than our own father was, you're a good man. And I think that just, you see it in, in the response that he has, and I kind of said it with, like, he's probably grumpy because his kids have told him that he is for so long, like, it felt like that's the first time anyone's paid him a compliment outside of his wife in probably 50 years, right? Like it's just that moment of someone seeing him for more than just being, you know, an asshole. Uh, and I really appreciated kind of what she said about her experience and about him just in that line. Well, I appreciate both of you guys going before me, um, because, and, and I'm still, I'm, I think I'm going to have to pass. I, I really don't know, been racking my brain since I watched it of kind of like what really stands out. And I, there isn't like a line. Um, it's probably more, you know, conversations, but even the conversations, I don't know that where I can pick it because I don't, I don't think like he does. I don't speak like he does. I don't, you know, it doesn't resonate with me because I don't see the world the way that he does. So even like, you know, hearing how he interacts with the priest and how he interacts with his neighbors and things like that. Like, um, there really just isn't anything that really stood out above the other. So, um, yeah, I guess for the, for the first time, I don't, uh, I don't really have an answer for this one. You don't envision yourself, uh, holding a kid at gunpoint someday and telling him to get off your lawn. 
<laughs> I mean, um, I just need to manicure your lawn, Brad. I th- there there's a path where we could end up. There. I guess uh, the thing I understood and resonated with the most is, uh, um, you know, opening up that cooler of beer and seeing that it's empty and just not really knowing what to do. So, um, yeah, I guess you know, some conversation he had with the dog is probably what would stand out to me the most. All right, guys, favorite scene uh, as we end our conversation here about Gran Torino. You want me to kick this one off? It's uh, For me, it's the house party, the barbecue that um, she convinced him to go to. You know, it starts with him seeing that empty cooler and just kind of saying that, you know, I might as well drink with strangers if I'm going to drink alone. Uh, and, and just watching him experience that, you know, he does, and he says some things that are not okay. Right when he walks into that house, but it doesn't phase her. It really doesn't phase the people in the house. I, maybe they can't even understand what he's saying, some of them. But, um, you know, he, he goes through and then it goes from him being so uncomfortable to being surrounded by the women uh, feeding him, you know. And he's just loving it because these women are just giving him all this amazing food. And then the the interactions when she takes him down to the basement and it's, it's just a bunch of teenagers down there. And they're kind of, you know, what is this? 70 year old dude doing down here with us and uh i think there's a lot of situational humor in it because of what we've seen out of him but i think that's also a huge turning point because you know he starts fixing things around the house after that and he actually allows himself to know these people instead of assume who they are all right so uh i mean i think for me probably not a surprise to you guys we've again done 50 movies I go to just the the scene with the the dialogue between you know the father and Eastwood's character uh, Walt there just sitting in the house after the shooting uh, of the neighbor's house uh, when he offers you know the priest the beers and the priest grabs two for each of them uh, which is a strong move there for the Catholic priest uh, and just the the nature of that dialogue there back and forth where they're they're talking about. Um, how upset they both are, how they both really want vengeance. And then seeing the different ways that they depart from there, of course, to, to try to make this right. Um, but I, I appreciated that scene. And I thought that it, it showed the depth of how Eastwood had come to, you know, really regard his neighbors as his family. Uh, and then, you know, made you ask yourself, so what would you do in a similar situation? Would you take the, the route that the, the priest did and be angry about it? want vengeance but trust in the system trust in the lord or you know do you go the route that eastwood did and uh so yeah i thought thought that was a nice scene so i think my favorite scene was the one with um with his son uh you know in real life his son walking sue down the street and uh they they come across the the black guy standing there and um, they start to get a little crude with sue and um, you know, saying some things and kind of getting, uh, they're roughing up the, the other kid after he pulls off the, uh, the bro that he never should have pulled off. But uh, you see Clint Eastwood sitting there and he has no reason to get involved with this. You know, like if he just drove on, no one would think any different of him. Like he didn't have to do anything for Sue and he pulls across the street there and he gets out and I just love, um, what he does with the, uh, the finger guns. Um, and I think that's where he pulled out the line. Um, you ever wake up and see someone that you shouldn't fuck with? And he's like, yeah, like that's me. 
and and then he pulls the real gun on him and she gets in the truck and he pulls off like that really shows where his mentality starts to change in this where he's now a protector he's he's going to look out for this family and he's going to do what it takes he put his life on the line in that scene and didn't even think twice about it um once he did that so he was kind of all in um and i just i i liked that it showed where his mentality was and i think that's where probably the um you know he he's his days are numbered anyhow um he's coughing up blood he a lot of time left so i think it's kind of like well if i go over this at least i'm going to die the man that i know i am i'm going to be protecting somebody else so that was uh um really neat to see which was yeah my favorite scene of the film great choices guys so uh, an interesting conversation, not one I expected to have when this got picked for the month of January, but uh, that's why we do the show. We rewatch and see what happens next week. Uh, changing gears <laughs> yet again, we are going to be talking about another man who is considered a protector, uh, a man who definitely is willing to put his life on the line, uh, but in a, in a much different way. Next week, we're going to be doing uh, the action classic, Taken, uh, about the only similarity is uh, a guy probably a little too old to be doing what he's doing on screen, but he still does it. Um, Liam Neeson uh, has made quite a career for himself since starring in Taken. Uh, so we will talk about that next week. This was a grand Torino. Thank you so much to everyone for supporting the show. Uh, and other than that, guys, for Mike, for Brad, I'm Ethan, and we'll see you next time.